Well, good morning. It's a beautiful Lord's Day. Pastor Nathan is out of town today uh, following the conference he was at. Uh, but this morning, Cody will be preaching for us, and um, I'll be teaching Sunday school, continuing our series on the Baptist Confession. So this morning we're in chapter 20, uh, which is of the gospel and of the extent of grace thereof. Uh, but before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the stay of rest that you've given us. Father, we ask that you would come down to us by your Spirit, be present with us in your Word. And Father, we pray that you'd give Cody boldness, clarity, and confidence this morning as he preaches the Word to us. Lord, I pray now in this teaching hour that you would be present, grow us in knowledge, in the knowledge of your Gospel in the knowledge of salvation, the salvation which was bought for us on the cross by your Son. Lord, we ask that you'd give our pastor a safe trip uh, back home to be back with us. Lord, that you'd bless us this morning as we gather in your name, in the name of your Son, in whose name we pray now. Amen. Well, you may be thinking this chapter is about the gospel in general, but just to kind of give um, a hint... It's actually a chapter about the spread of the gospel, so we today uh, might consider missions or evangelism, but basically the extent of the gospel throughout the world is uh, the topic at hand. Um, And just to recap the last few chapters, um, some helpful stuff for us to keep in mind as we go forward, uh, chapter 6, way back, covered the fall of man, so um, Adam fell, we are all in Adam. Chapter 7 covered God's covenant, so there's discussion about the covenant of grace and the gospel, um, as well as language of the covenant of works, which we saw last week in the chapter on the law of God. Chapter 8 covered Christ the mediator, so they detailed the the promised seed of the covenant of grace throughout the Old Testament, revealed in the new in Christ. And then uh, the last section that we finished was chapters 10 through 18, so this covered the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. Uh, that, the first half of those chapters was soteriology from, uh, you could say, the perspective of God. So how God works salvation uh, from eternity for us. So salvation from the eternal divine perspective. And then the last few chapters of that covered salvation from our perspective. So how do we experience the benefits of salvation? And uh, we covered all of that recently. And then, of course, the last chapter, the last, the last two weeks, I should say, um, covered the law of God. So we had discussion on the covenant of works and the different types of laws uh, that God institutes. We have the moral law. It's binding to all people of all times. We have the positive law, which is given to certain people at certain times um, based on their covenantal standing. So think of the old covenant, the covenant of works for Israel, the new covenant for us. Um, And an easy example of that would be, as Pastor Nathan pointed out, like the Sabbath. The Sabbath principle is for all, but by covenant, God ordains the, uh, the means in which we rest in him. And, of course, for the old, in the Old Covenant, the Israelites rested on the seventh day, um, following the pattern of creation. In the New Covenant, we rest on the first day, following the pattern of new creation and the resurrection. Uh, just to give you an outline of where we're going today, uh, we'll go through the context of this chapter. Paragraph 1 covers the gospel in relation to covenant theology, as I was just uh, discussing. 
Paragraph two, we'll discuss, we'll, uh, discuss the, the means of gospel revelation. So how has God appointed the spread of the gospel throughout the world and to the nations? Paragraph uh, three um, covers God's will in relation to the spread of the gospel. So should we pit God's sovereignty um, up against the doctrine of, 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 well, not the doctrine of, but um, should we pit God's sovereignty against the spread of the gospel throughout the world? Uh, is that something that, is, are they opposed to one another? Obviously, the answer is no, as you can guess, but um, it's an important paragraph. Paragraph three is uh, the necessity of both the word of God and the spirit of God in the spread of the gospel, that both are required. You can't have just the word of God. You can't just have movements of the spirit. It is both together um, in, in the gospel work. But first, I have a question for you all to consider. As we um, consider the, the gospel, the spread of the gospel throughout the world, and the placement of this paragraph, or this chapter. So this chapter, chapter 20, is actually unique to the Baptist Confession and the Savoy Declaration. So if you uh, flip in the Trinity hymnals, for instance, and you go to the Westminster Confession, they don't have this chapter here. And in fact, from here on out, each chapter is going to be one number behind. So um, in this example, usually our confession models close closely to, uh, it models closely the Westminster Confession, but here this is unique to the Savoy and the London Baptist. Um, so based on the context of previous chapters, based on what we just uh, went through in the outline and what you know so far throughout the series, uh, why do you think that the Westminster Confession left this chapter out, or did they do that intentionally? Um, but why did the, the Baptists and the Congregationalists include a chapter on on the spread of the gospel. Any ideas? Obviously, some of you might not have an idea until the end of uh, the Sunday school, but yeah, Richard, right? Yeah, so Richard was saying that um, a potential reason is um, missions was not a, a huge focus during the Reformation, and we're kind of going into a period here where that actually, I think it was called the Age of Missions, which followed the Reformation. Um, I think that could be actually a good reason why they included it, potential reason. Um, there's a few other reasons as well. I don't know if there's any other ideas before we take a look at them. So one one potential reason that um, Sam Waldron, of, uh, he's president of uh, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, um, he believed that the rise of deism in England was a potential cause. So deism is the idea that God created the world, but then he stepped away, kind of lets um, the affairs of man, the affairs of the world, go off on its own like a clock. He sets the clock and he walks away. Um, and this was, again, this is in the early modern period. So we have different philosophical shifts leading to things like deism. That's a potential reason, and it's definitely part of it, just as um, the rise of the age of missions was part of it. Um, although there's a, there's a few other reasons that I think are more, more pertinent. One uh, that they're actually pretty clear at in this, this, chap- this chapter is uh, showing the limits of our natural theology and general revelation. So 
It's been made clear, especially at the beginning of the confession, that we need a natural theology. That is necessary. We need natural law. Um, These things that all men know by natural light, common light, as the confession says. These things are important, but um, natural law, natural theology, general revelation, they're all limited. They can't reveal Christ, can't reveal the gospel. So there's an idea at the time that really held the opposite of that. So there were some who believed that salvation included those who had no explicit faith in Christ, but who lived up to the precepts of their own cultures. So the Arminians and the Socinians of the day, so Arminians were those who underemphasized the sovereignty of God, overemphasized man's free will. The Socinians, uh, of course, denied the Trinity uh, primarily, but this is one of their beliefs as well, um, that you didn't, have, you didn't need the explicit revelation of Christ and the gospel to be saved by God. That God would have mercy if you lived as a moral, upright citizen of the world. There's also Richard Baxter. Um, he is beloved by many in the Reformed um, world, but he had many issues, and this, along with things like justification, was one of them. So Richard Baxter may have heard, him, heard of some of his books, but um, he also believed that he thought it was actually a travesty that the Reformed um, believed that Christ was the exclusive means of the gospel, that you could have someone who hasn't heard the gospel in a far-off nation, and they realize that there's a deity they need to serve and worship. Um, Richard Baxter believed that, well, if they knew that, if they lived a relatively moral life, God would have mercy. And that's wrong. Um, And he was in many debates. And of course, if you know much about the Roman Catholic Church today, um, post-Vatican II, which is a document written in the last century, uh, the Roman Catholic Church actually officially teaches this, that you don't need the gospel to be saved, that you can live um, according to the light of nature, according to the, the natural law, and um, until you've denied Christ explicitly and lived what they consider morally upright, um, then you can be saved. That is current Reformed, Catholic, or Reformed, not Reformed, sorry, Roman Catholic teaching today. Um, and it's a huge error. So this is something that we are faced with even now. And just to build off, build off of that, uh, the, I think the most important reason that this paragraph is necessary on the spread of the gospel is because of our doctrine of the church, our ecclesiology. So, of course, Baptists and Congregationalists are congregational. So those two confessions, the Savoy Declaration and the London Baptist, are congregational, whereas the Westminster Confession is Presbyterian. So there's a totally different form of church government, and with that, an idea of how God has appointed the spread of the gospel throughout the world. So Presbyterians and the Anglicans of the Church of England at the time, they believed that the only proper and possible means of the gospel spread was by the authority of bishops who were higher up and presbyteries. So uh, these bishoprics and presbyteries, essentially elders over their denominations, their local denominations, um, you needed that hierarchical structure to have a formal means of the spread of the gospel. So it needed to be appointed by those leaders, essentially. And I do want to stress that um, congregationalists, including Baptists, we do believe in the authority of elders that God has appointed, but it's a different means of church government. And um, at the time, again, Presbyterians and Anglicans were looking at congregationalists like, you have no... uh, 
they would see, see them and, and their idea of the spread of the gospel as, as limited, that they have no real authority to do so, essentially. Um, so this is actually countering that and responding to those claims. It lays forth a congregational response to them. So now we'll consider uh, the first paragraph, paragraph one, again dealing with uh, covenant theology. The covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life, God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel, as to the substance of it, was revealed and therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. So again, considering the spread of the gospel, the gospel itself in relation to covenant theology. So the language here is directly calling back the teaching of chapter 7 of God's covenant. So we have this language of the covenant of works. If you remember the last two weeks, Pastor Nathan teaching on the law of God, the covenant of works we can equate with with law. And it is in contrast to the covenant of grace, which is uh, the gospel, the promise of the seed of the woman, as language of the confession says. So covenant of works, just to kind of recap the past few chapters, covenant of works um, is, it requires obedience for reward. So life, eternal life, right standing with God. In the covenant of works, obedience is required for that. But of course, as we know, all are in Adam, and if we're all in Adam, ultimately we've already disobeyed, and we will continue to disobey in this life, and we'll never have a right standing with God or eternal life. But then the covenant of grace is, uh, reward is given on the basis of grace. It's given on the basis of grace by faith, ultimately. And just an important detail here is federal headship. Uh, if you recall the chapter on covenant theology, again, it's, it's key for the rest of the confession. Our covenantal status, so which, which covenant that you stand in today, is directly related to who your federal head is, who represents you before God. So think of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, which we're going through 1 Corinthians now, so I'm excited for Pastor Nathan to get to chapter 15 probably next year. In Adam, all die. In Adam, all die. We have, in Adam, broken the covenant of works, and we uh, pay for it by death. But in Christ, all are made alive. And that is key here as we consider the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And as we consider the world, the nations, who are in need of the gospel, of the preaching of the gospel. So this gospel promise was first made in Genesis 3.15. So following Adam's breaking of the covenant of works, right away God promises a covenant of grace that will come. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here we have the, the proto-evangelium or the, the first sign of the good news in Scripture. And ultimately in the end, uh, the seed of the woman, Christ as we know him, will crush the head of Satan and death and sin will be defeated. There's the promise, the seed of the covenant of grace to come in Christ. So in a chapter, in this chapter, dealing with the spread of the gospel, which covenant is to be proclaimed? Is it to be the covenant of works, the law, or is it to be the covenant of grace, the gospel? The clear answer is 
the gospel, the covenant of grace. It is the good news. It's the good news that um, the requirements of the covenant of works have been met in Christ. If we have faith in him, we will stand with him righteous before God and receiving that resurrection life that Christ bought for us. So against the claims of, of the Arminians and the Socinians of the time, and Baxter and even today Roman Catholics, we're motivated to preach the gospel because it is revealed, as, as it says, as the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. It, it is the appointed means that God has um, given us for the spread of the gospel in the world. So that, that chapter, or that paragraph covers a lot of just the groundwork here. And we'll go into the, more of the, the practical matters of this. But are there any questions up to this point? We'll consider uh, paragraph 2, then. This promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only by the word of God. Neither do the works of creation or providence with a light of nature make discovery of Christ or of grace by him. So much as in a general or obscure way, much less that men destitute of the revelation of him by the promise or gospel should be enabled thereby to attain saving faith or repentance. So here it's clear again that they are countering those claims of Richard Baxter, of Arminians, of today's Roman Catholics, that without the revelation of Christ there is no salvation. There's no coming to a right standing with God simply by submitting to um, what we can know by natural law and natural theology. We must have the revelation of Christ. So here we're given the means of gospel revelation. And particularly gospel revelation as it pertains to uh, preaching it throughout the world. This paragraph answers, where is the gospel found? Where is salvation found? And again, natural theology has its limits. We can't look at creation, look at the law that God has revealed on our hearts, and find Christ or the Spirit. We can only know that there is a God. We can know many things about Him, but it is limited and it, is not, uh, it does not save. The promise of Christ is, only, is revealed only by the Word of God. So natural theology, natural law, in the end can only condemn, as we saw the last two weeks in the law of God. We all know the covenant of works, and it can it has three. There are three uses of the law, as Pastor Nathan covered. But ultimately, without Christ, it's pointless in terms of um, our standing with God. It can be a guide in life. It can even protect society from being the worst that it could possibly be. But it cannot save. Creation, providence, the light of nature—they can in no way reveal the promise of Christ. Which brings us to the necessity of gospel preaching. The, the gospel must be preached in the world. This actually is a, is a motivation, and we'll see in the, in the next paragraph, I think, that um, many will pit God's sovereignty and the appointed means of preaching the gospel. They'll pit it against the need for evangelism and missions. But in reality, it is because the, there are people out there who don't know Christ. And even if God has appointed that, even if God is, is sovereign, it's because of his goodwill um, that they don't know the gospel now, and it's because of his goodwill that he has appointed the means of gospel revelation. Uh, but the, again, the next paragraph will uh, we'll cover that. So, two key verses here. Romans ten fourteen. 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So this was one of the first proof texts that they included here. It really goes to show that we need a preacher to preach the gospel. We need a gospel to be preached. Because if there's no one to preach that gospel and uh, no one hears that gospel, then nobody can be saved. Going back to the exclusivity of the gospel throughout the world. Isaiah 60, verses 2 and 3. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So here we have a shadow of that gospel promise being fulfilled. That the nations are in darkness. Even Israel at the time was in great darkness. But ultimately the Lord, as it says, the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations will come to this light, the light of the glory of the Lord. And even the kings uh, to it as well. And previously in Isaiah, Isaiah 25, um, there's this language of a veil being spread over the nations. They're all blind in need of of real sight. And as we know, that real sight is um, revealed in the light of Christ. So there's a a veil over the eyes of all. The only thing that can lift it is um, the glory of the Lord. Here are a few quotes from different Puritans on um, the necessity of preaching the gospel, so building off of that, Romans 10.15. Thomas Watson says, The gospel reveals the mystery of the kingdom and life eternal, which cannot be known by the light of nature. Thomas Brooks, Nature is a good preacher, but she never taught the way of reconciliation between God and man. So we see the the goodness of, of natural theology, natural revelation, and again, we see its limits. I know this is, uh, I'm repeating this a lot, but that is the, one of the key points of this paragraph in the context of the time. Jeremiah Burroughs, natural religion, so um, a devotion to God based on natural theology and natural law. Natural religion can never make a man gracious or holy or bring him to heaven. Again, going back to the three uses of the law, the law revealed to all men can... Um, it can give us a, a, an easier society to live in, even an e- easier society for Christians to preach the gospel in, but again, it is not enough to make man righteous before God. They must have the revelation, the, the true religion of Christ. And finally, John Bunyan, the gospel is the great instrument of regeneration and sanctification, and without it, no man can be saved. So just summarizing all of that, It is the gospel alone that is the instrument of salvation. And that brings us to paragraph 3, which which builds off of that. Paragraph 3. The revelation of the gospel to sinners made in diverse times and by sundry parts. So here we have an echo of Hebrews 1.1. With the addition of the promises and precepts for the obedience required therein, as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God, not being annexed by virtue of any promise to the due improvement of men's natural abilities, by virtue of common light received without it, which none ever made or can do so. 
and therefore in all ages the preaching of the gospel has been granted unto persons and nations as to the extent or straightening of it in great variety according to the counsel of the will of God. So here they are um, displaying the, the importance of God's sovereignty in uh, the spread of the gospel. Um, the last section there on um, in all ages, the preaching of the gospel has been granted unto persons and nations um, by the counsel of the will of God. I think this is, uh, in many ways, you can think of, of Jonah being commanded to preach to Nineveh. This was prior to Christ, and yet um, the Lord had appointed Jonah to go preach this promise to the people of Nineveh. Of course, as we know, Jonah did not want to. He rebelled against that. But um, even prior to Christ, we needed a revelation of the promise in order to be saved, the promise of Christ. And after Christ, we need Christ himself to be preached. Um, but this, is, this was in all ages. And, of course, um, by, by the virtue of the common light received by all men, we can't come to the knowledge of that promise. So this paragraph is answering how does this doctrine of the preaching of the gospel throughout the world relate to the sovereignty of God? Rather than being in opposition to one another, rather than, than pitting God's sovereignty against the command of to preach the gospel throughout the world, our preaching of the gospel actually depends on the sovereignty of God. Many Arminians, they misunderstand what we believe as Calvinists, as the Reformed. Their view of, of um, evangelism and missions, at least their view of what we believe, is something like, well, if God is sovereign, if, if he elects and predestines, and he calls, he effectually calls on his own, then there's no need to preach, because God can just do it. But what that misunderstands is the means that God has appointed sovereignly. And um, in reality, it is actually because of God's sovereignty, because of God's sovereign election and predestination, that we can truly trust in the power of preaching as the appointed means of salvation. If God is not sovereign, then we have no confidence. This morning, Cody is preaching. He has no confidence this morning. Sorry to call you out there. But Cody can have confidence this morning because he knows that God has sovereignly elected men and women to salvation, and all that he has elected who receive the gospel this morning, all who are believing, God has promised to build them up to call the elect through his preaching, if God has ordained that. So Cody can know that, let's say for years, he's, he preaches and preaches, or, or maybe not Cody, will have a hypothetical pastor at another church. For years, he's no fruit. For years, preaches um, to his church, sees no fruit, and with new believers, uh, maybe even just... Uh, no growth among the congregation. But there's no need for him to be discouraged because he can trust in the promises of God, that God has sovereignly elected those who will hear the gospel in due time. And just because we don't see the fruit of that doesn't mean that God isn't working. And when we do see the fruit of that, it is a confirmation that God is working. So, yeah, Kim. Yeah, um, brother, it's not effective. We need to be adding 
right. right. We see Christ, who had fed 5,000 people. They're all into him. He starts preaching. Mm -hmm. They all left. Jesus was a terrible church plan. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, that's, but that's not what we see. And it's very tempting for us to add something to it because we don't see, we don't trust in the um, sovereignty of the Lord God. Yeah. So that's a very, very good point. And, and that's where you can rest and not be anxious about it, but rest in the promise. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point. I mean, most churches in America have been tempted to go outside of the Word of God for our means of worship, what we should preach, um, what we should hear on the Lord's Day. Um, yeah, growing up in a seeker-sensitive kind of background, that was always on display. There was, you know, we have to have a new, the newest, latest Christian music. We have to have um, lights and fog that you know, attract more visitors. It's got to be, um, oh, well, the gospel, yeah, it's clear in Scripture, but we need more than that. We need more to attract more people so that um, they'll really love, love the Lord. But in reality, as you said, that detracts from the appointed means that God has ordained. And in fact, it's a distrust of the Word of God. Because you're, you're looking at, at Scripture as something that, well, yeah, it's true and, and we believe that, but we need something more. We need something more than you don't trust in, in the power of God to do what he says he will. Um, yeah, that's, that's really good. Well, conversely, uh, there are those who hear the preached word and do not submit in faith. They do so, though, on the basis of the sovereignty and goodness of God. So again, some ministers don't see fruit in their ministry, but they can trust in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. That is, um, that's not on accident. It's not an accident. They do so on the basis of it. So there's no such thing, in one sense, as an unsuccessful ministry. Those men who have been set apart to preach the word, um, they, can, they can preach, they can teach, disciple, trusting that the Lord will fulfill his promises. He will ordain the elect to salvation. But it's also true of those who never receive gospel preaching. So again, hypothetical, there's a nation out in the world, they've never, uh, they're uncivilized, they've never been reached by um, civilization never been preached the gospel to and yet we can look at them knowing okay they're in need of the gospel they have not received the gospel because god has sovereignly ordained that and yet god has also commanded us to preach the gospel throughout the world to the nations if we haven't gotten there yet that's not because um, the unsuccessful mission work of christians that christians just don't care but it's that God has, has ordained that in eternity as well. And that if they do receive the gospel, praise be to God. That's what he, um, what he has desired from eternity past. John Owen has a helpful quote here. Uh, again, he was a congregationalist, so he would have subscribed to this, this chapter um, as it was included in the Savoy Declaration. Throughout history, whenever the gospel has not been preached to any people, we find that Scripture always attributes the fact to God's own will. So this was in response to some of the claims of the time. You know, as Richard mentioned earlier, the, uh, this is the beginning of the age of missions. Following the Reformation and the post-Reformation, there's an age in church history where 
um, churches realize we need to bring the gospel throughout the world. It doesn't need to remain here in England or in France, throughout Europe. We need to go to the nations. So it was around this time, the turn of the 17th century, that um, they realized um, the importance of planting churches outside of their own context that had been what we today consider as reached. They needed to go to unreached people groups. But some were claiming that, well, the reason that um, those people weren't reached is because we failed as a church. But John Owen is reminding churches that you haven't failed. The gospel is being faithfully proclaimed in your midst. You are planting churches where they should be planted, but ultimately God, he has commanded the church to go out. He has commanded the church to preach to the world, to make disciples of all nations. And yet the fact, if we read scripture, the fact that they have not been reached yet is also appointed by God. I mean, the people of Nineveh, or really any any. Um, any of the nations outside of Israel at the time, it was because of God's will that they did not have the promise of God. But when God um, revealed to Jonah that you need to preach to the people of Nineveh, that's an example of it was God's will at that time to reveal it to a nation in in shadow form, yes. Um, But it's clear as we read the Old Testament, um, it wasn't because of the God wasn't being uh, merciless when he didn't save the nations. The nations, all people, are in Adam. They are without the righteousness of Christ. They are without righteousness before the covenant of works. And we see that in the nations specifically. We saw it in the people of Israel, which is why God covered them in darkness. And yet, he was faithful to his promise. And uh, we can only attribute the goodness of God in sending missionaries and sending Jonah to the people of Nineveh though reluctantly, uh, we can attribute that to God's goodness, not to, um, well, God wasn't, the God you believe in wasn't merciful in the past, why is he only doing it now? Well, it's because of God's mercy that he is, um, that he has appointed uh, the mission work throughout the world. Were there any questions up to this point on, on this idea of God's sovereignty in relation to the spread of the gospel or the, the doctrine of the church that's on display here? If not, we'll move on to the last paragraph here. It's a short chapter. Paragraph 4. Although the gospel be the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace, and is as such abundantly sufficient thereunto, yet that men who are dead in trespasses may be born again, quickened or regenerated, there is moreover necessary and effectual and superable work of the Holy Spirit, Upon the whole soul for the producing in them a new spiritual life, without which no other means will effect their conversion unto God. So again, just hammering that point home, there's no means to, unto salvation, unto conversion, except by the gospel. There's no means. We can't know it by the light of nature. We can't know it by coming to certain conclusions about the goodness of, of the one God. We must have the revelation of Christ. In order to be born again, in order to be quickened, regenerated unto life, we need the revelation of Christ. And here in this paragraph, we need the work of the Spirit as well. It is a Trinitarian work. It's not binitarian. It's just God decreed it. Um, We have faith in Christ. It's also working of the Spirit in that. He initiates um, that believing, as we saw in earlier chapters. So here is the necessity of both the Spirit and the Word of God. 
we're given the inward means and the outward means of our salvation um, in conversion. So back in chapter 10 on uh, effectual calling, we read that God effectually calls by his word and spirit. And here they're building off of that same idea that God not only effectually calls, he converts and regenerates by his word and spirit. So we have the outward means there, the preaching of the word. It is the, um, what we hear and what comes, comes into our ears penetrates our hearts and minds. But we need the inward changing of the Spirit in order for that, that message to shape us, to transform us into the image of Christ. And that's, of course, the power of the Spirit. So this paragraph, and really this chapter as a whole, is a response to two falsities, two false beliefs. One is that unconverted men may of themselves find salvation, whether it's in the light of nature, whether it's in deductions about the, the law of God revealed to them, um, they cannot find salvation. And two, that the presence of the gospel in a society is in itself sufficient to ensure the salvation of men. So just because there's preaching in a, in a society, just because we live in a Christian world or in the south of churches in every corner, does not mean, um, is, it is not sufficient on its own to ensure the salvation of all those who are there, who are in these churches. Again, as we see, it requires a work of the Spirit. Without the Spirit, um, the Word will not, cannot work. Um, think of other passages in, in the New Testament. Um, we worship um, in spirit and in truth. It's not just worshiping according to the Word of truth. It's worshiping by the Spirit of the Lord as well. Those two must work in conjunction. And the same is true of our salvation. Um, that we must hear the Word, we must submit to it, believe it, but we also need the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Well, that uh, concludes this morning. Um, it's a short, short chapter this time, uh, really summarizing a lot of previous uh, doctrines that were taught in the, uh, the sections on salvation from chapters 10 on. Um, we're actually going to finish on time for the first time in a while. Usually we're really crunching it at 1025. It looks like it's not even 1015 yet. But um, are there any final questions on this chapter or um, really this turning point of the confession? Because as we move forward, um, we're, we're moving past the, the doctrine of salvation more into the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the Christian life. Um, but just on this chapter or previous chapters that were tied in, are there any final questions? Yeah, Tom. Yeah, sure. There you go. I don't have a question. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, Cody. Um, so this chapter begins with uh, a paragraph on uh, the, the gospel promise of Genesis 3.15, right? Uh, and it ends with uh, the work of the Spirit in salvation. Can you maybe just talk about, and you may have already done this, uh, why would a chapter on the on the gospel begin with a hermeneutical myth? Hmm. Great question. Why does this chapter yeah. on the gospel? Why, why is why must we start with that hermeneutical myth when we begin to speak, speak and think on the work of Christ through the gospel? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So Cody's asking um, with the beginning of this this chapter. Um, building on the promise of Genesis 3.15, um, what is the, 
what's the purpose of giving us a hermeneutical note, a way to read scripture? At the beginning of the chapter, before we move on to consider uh, that question, what do you think, Cody? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's massively important for um, our understanding of what the gospel is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That Genesis 3.15, you cannot understand what Christ does in the gospel. You can't understand what the Spirit does today in the church. Yeah. Apart from the Old Testament context, apart from a proper reading of all of Scripture. So how we read Scripture is massively important, not just for, you know, our theology, so to say, but practically for our assurance as Christians um, and how we understand you know, the work of God even today in our lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's a good, a really good point. Um, many within evangelicalism, there's a, I think, a lack of a proper hermeneutics, especially among those who are really excited about church planning and missions, and yet things like how we read the Word of God, the right way to read it, is just left behind, and it really is like, well, if you can't read the beginning of Scripture right. You can't understand the gospel that comes later, which is promised there in Genesis 3. Um, so that's a yeah, great point that we're kind of footnoted with how to read Scripture before we even consider how to preach the gospel to the world. Yeah. And especially the Old Testament, because this chapter is ultimately about how it is the gospel that saves and not the law. Yeah. And so many will read the Old Testament as a moralistic, like yeah. a moral textbook. Something that we need to look at for examples. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Mark? What is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the study of how to interpret a document. So, in this, how to interpret scripture. So, um, if you're interested in that, we've had, I think, earlier in the series on the Confession, some of those earlier chapters, chapter one, um, even chapter three in the Doctrine of God, has, it's covered some of hermeneutics, how we read scripture. And with that, hermeneutics of the Confession, how we read the Confession in conjunction with that. But, Hermeneutics is essential. Maybe one day we'll do a series on that. That'd be great. Yeah, Kim.
yeah. it is up to us to convert somebody, then we need to do everything we can to make yeah. at least make a decision. Right, us. yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. We'll close on that. Um, thought we were finishing on time before 10.15, but here we are, 10.18. Um, but uh, let's uh, close with a, Lord of, uh, a word of prayer, going to the Lord. Our Father, we, we thank you for um, this, this document which edifies us, which teaches us the, the means you have appointed salvation, the promise of Christ, um, revealed to us um, in, in seed and shadow form in the Old Testament and revealed ultimately um, explicitly in Christ in the New Testament. Lord, we ask that this would, would shape us, would shape our view of, of the gospel, the necessity of the gospel, but also knowing, Lord, that you are sovereign and that um, all that happens in this world, all those who, who do not hear your word, or do hear your word and do not obey, or hear your word and submit um, in faith, this is all by your sovereign goodwill, Lord. Help us to see that. Um, give Cody confidence as he preaches the word this morning in this. Um, Lord, we pray that you be present in the preaching of your word this morning, but not, not in word only, but in spirit as well, as we need uh, the working of him to, for Christ. Uh, to transform us, Lord. Father, bless us this day. Give us rest in him. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.